0: I want to ask the rest of you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts 17. And I want to, I want to, uh, say something here before we d- dive into Acts 17. Um, a lot a lot of very kind words said uh, after last week, and a lot of things throughout the week. A lot of discussion that went on throughout the week about the Lord's um, uh, new call on my life and um, uh, in, as far as uh, a ministry position goes and uh, Jared something was really good, we were just talking about the different things and this response was so encouraging to me, the, the, a real health in our body um, uh, that, that, that I saw from the response, not only yet last week but throughout the week and, and Jared said like this, "Was I was very wise there wasn't any despair at all you know, if there would have been despair it would have been a sign of not health because this is not about me it's never been about me. Um, I serve with plurality of elders. And we'll see here in a few weeks in Acts 20, elder, pastor, bishop, all three are synonymous. It's the same word. Um, now, sometimes Greg doesn't like me to remind her. Tyler likes to remind me that they're also a pastor, right? We use that word in our English language and in our culture like it's different. It's not different, right? For me, for me, also served here as one of our elder pastors. It's synonymous. Now, so you see evidence in the scripture. You do have a pastor teacher and someone who excels at the gift of teaching. I'm not... Build myself up that's what they asked me to do here let's say it that way alright so but it's never been about me and our body's never been about that so I wasn't surprised that there wasn't despair and God's doing a great work here in grace as he has for the last uh, 13, 13 and a half years he'll continue to do a great work here with or without me and, and I don't want to say this makes with or with or without you too right? remember he doesn't need us but he chooses to use us and that's what's wonderful uh, so there wasn't despair it was just such an encouraging reminder of the health of Grace Bible Church and uh, so I'm so thankful for you all and your pursuit of Jesus. So we can respond to news like that um, with sadness and yet excitement, all of us together. And uh, I just appreciate that. It was just a privilege and a joy for me to, to see that happening, but not a surprise at all. Uh, so thank you for being uh, the church and for responding in such a great way. And um, I also want to um, go ahead and tell you, you know, somebody asked last week, are you going to finish Acts? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought I'm, I thought I was going to do uh, last week. I thought, well, I'll just do all Acts 17 next next week, right? It's not going to happen. There's no way I could do all Acts 17. You'll see why. I mean, I'm just going to do the first 15 verses here this morning, and I'll ask you this at the end of it. What would you leave out in what we're going to see here? Unless you all want to stay two hours this morning, and two hours for the next however many weeks. I don't think that's the case, but uh, uh, just to let you know, I don't think that Um, that's going to happen but who knows we'll trust the Lord let's just take what we have before us and be faithful here right and be in God's will today and then seek him and try to be in his will tomorrow and be in his will the next day and guess what in three weeks and four weeks and five months and five years from now where will we be in the will of God so we're going to take this passage this morning, Acts 17, 1 through 15, um, in our series on the book of Acts, Missio Dei, The Mission of God, and um, the, the, the title of the message this morning is Turning the World Upside Down, Turning the World Upside Down. Let's, let's pray. Where we ask again, um, as we do, as we gather each Sunday, for you to do what only you can do, Lord, and that is to make your word come alive in our hearts, to change us from the inside out. Lord, I pray as we, we read your word and as we study your word this morning, as your word is explained and exclaimed, uh, Lord, that um, we would embrace it, that we would believe it with all that we are. And Lord, it would make a difference in all that we are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you all here this morning have ever heard of a pineapple upside-down cake? you ever heard of that? Now, would anybody ever admit to eating one of those? All right. Who actually thinks they're pretty good? i uh, pretty good, you know. Now, some of you may think they're pretty good and say, man, that, this, that had a funny effect on me because some of the, the pineapple upside down cake that they make, they pour rum over top of it. Uh, so uh, maybe that's why you like it. I'm not sure. But uh, the pineapple <laughs> upside down cake, uh, it, it's, it, it, I think it's pretty good because I like pineapple. If you don't like pineapple, you're probably not the like, to like a pineapple upside down cake. Um, but... Uh, l- l- if you're not familiar with a pineapple upside down cake, let me give you, help you understand about a pineal, pineapple upside down cake. Say that 10 times real fast. So what happens is you start with the pineapple on the bottom of the pan. You actually mix it with a bunch of stuff, sugary stuff, and, and then you put the pineapple on the bottom of the pan. Then you take the cake batter mix that you've made and you pour it over the pineapple, which is on the bottom of the pan. Then you bake it and you take it out of the oven. And you're supposed to wait, I think, five minutes or something like that. And then you flip it, all right, and it comes out on a plate. And you pull it off and guess where the pineapples are? They're now on top of the cake. All right, now they call it pineapple upside down cake because you basically make it upside down. Most of the times you, have, you, you start and you put the topping on last, here you put the topping on first, so they call it a pineapple upside-down cake. And in reality, when it's all said and done, I think they've misnamed the cake. It, 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 sh- it should be, instead of be called a pineapple upside-down cake, it should be called a pineapple right-side-up cake. <laughs> think about it. Who eats it like the other way? It's right-side-up. All right, the topping is right where it's supposed to be when it's all said and done, on top of the cake. Now, don't anybody ever try to make a chocolate upside-down cake? It will not work, and I will not eat it. All right? And I love chocolate, but you better put my chocolate on top. All right? And that's where the pineapple ends up. It's the pineapple right-side-up cake. And you're probably wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Acts 17? How does it relate to Acts 17? Are you making one today? I'm not making one today, no. Um If you're not asking that question, how in the world this relates to Acts 17, and I'm not making one today, um, but if you're not asking that question, you should be asking that question, why in the world we bring a pineapple upside down cake to Acts 17? Well, the pineapple upside down cake is a lot like our lives. I want you to think about that with me. When God made the world, and mankind, things were right side up. Everything was good, and, and mankind had a, a special, unique relationship with the Lord. It says they walked with the Lord in the cool of the day, and they had this conversation going on. There was nothing that would hinder the relationship. And then Genesis 3 comes, and Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve, and they both fall, they both sin, they both uh, do what God told them not to, to do, and all of a sudden, right side up becomes upside down. And they're no longer in a right relationship with God. There's now sin between them. They're separated from God. Things are now upside down. And the whole Bible is about making things right side up again. And very much like that pineapple upside down cake. And in Genesis 3, and specifically Genesis 3.15, God promised to send one who would make things right again to turn us right side up and you see that here in Genesis three fifteen, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed you, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel now this is, the, uh, this is after Adam and Eve had sinned and this is actually part of the curse and this is speaking to the serpent who we know to be Satan and this is what he says I'm going to put enmity there's going to be conflict between you and the woman and, and between your seed and her seat, So it's going to be down the line. And people who come from her. Alright? And people who follow after you. He shall. Oh now, my goodness. Now this seed has become a personal pronoun masculine. You see that? He shall bruise you. It's going to be a man. And what will he do? He will bruise you or crush you on the head. And you shall. You know, it's some translations say, And in so doing, you shall bruise him on the heel. Which is the fatal wound? A head wound or a heel wound? A head wound. It's the first prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come and, when he, and by dying and rising again, he would crush Satan's head. He would conquer sin and death and he would take what had been turned upside down and turn it right side up. And everything would be like it's supposed to be. The topping would be on the top. How God intended it. Therefore, those who trust in the provision of the seed that was to come, who now we know who has come, they will be made right with God. They will be turned right side up. Now from the world's perspective, those who place their trust in Jesus Christ are what? Upside down. Go tell someone that you've become a Christian who doesn't know the Lord, and they're going to think, Alright, you're a little goofy. There's something wrong with this person, especially if you've really been transformed by him. I think about my good friend Bob Warren, who passed away a couple of years ago. When he was playing the NBA, he was actually with the L.A. Stars at the time. He ended up playing his last part of his, his career with the San Antonio Spurs back in the old ABA. And not many of you have been in here remember that. red, Right and right blue basketballs, Dr. J, Big Fro, stuff like that. A few of you remember that. But he was there, and... Um, And the Lord opened his eyes, opened his heart to the gospel. And he repented and trusted in Christ's provision for his sin. And he went home and told his wife. And she told him to go to hell and left him right there on the spot. Why did she do that? Because she thought he had been turned upside down. That's the world's perspective and those who follow Jesus Christ were the ones that are upside down. But when God looks at things, he sees it the other way. When we follow after him and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then right side up. Uh, And I think I'm going to stick with God's perspective on this. How he looks at things that we who follow Christ are right side up. We're right with him. In Acts 17 when Paul and his missionary team come to Thessalonica and preach the gospel some people believe while others get angry. We'll see that here in a second. And those who get angry go go to the governing authorities in verse 6 and say, now some of your translations will say something different but I'm just going to give you uh, the, the, the translation that I'm using on this particular verse. Actually my translation says something different but it says these men have turned the world upside down. Some translations say says, have upset the world. That's the NASB. The New American Standard says, have upset the world. Now, you ever heard of the, 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 the term or uh, saying, don't upset the apple cart? Or you've upset the apple cart? That you've turned it over is what it's talking about. You've turned it upside down. That's what it means, upset. That's why I'm sure the New American Standard used that. But most of your translations say, have turned the world upside down. In fact all the rest of most of modern English translations um, and even the King James Version says a turn have this idea of turning something upside down. Um, but th- that was their perspective of what was going on with Paul and his, tr- and his team coming in and bringing the gospel. But in reality through the preaching of the gospel they were wrong. think the fact is things were being turned right side up. The accusation that they were turning the world upside down meant to be it was meant to be negative. But there's a lot of irony in this when they said that. Because they were turning the world as they saw it upside down. Because the gospel was entering in and changing things from the way they had been before. Oh, this, oh, this same thing. This, this phrase, they are turning the world upside down. Oh, that it would be said of us here at Grace Bible Church. Oh, that it would be said of all people who follow Jesus Christ they're turning the world upside down. Things are changing because of the influence of the gospel through his people. It's a badge of honor that we would be turning the world upside down. Just as it was for Paul and his companions. Well, let's look here at Acts 17, 1 through 15, and, and I'm going to walk down through the passage and explain and point out some different things, and I'm going to cr- come back and point out a, a couple ways that we can turn the world upside down, or in reality, make things right again, turn it right side up. So let's be reminded here of our context, context of chapter 17. In the second half of Acts 16, if you were here last week, we saw Paul, Silas, Timothy, and, and Luke come to Philippi. And they, 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 come. they don't come to a synagogue because there isn't a synagogue. There's not enough men to make up a synagogue there. So they come down by the river and there's some women there praying. And Which would be one of the places that Jews would gather if there wasn't a synagogue. Would be by the, the river or by water so they could do ceremonial washing. So they go and they seek these people out. And there's a bunch of women. doesn't it can indicate any men are there. And the first thing that happens is the Lord opens up Lydia's heart to receive the gospel that Paul had been preaching. So the Lord starts the church in Philippi with a woman who wasn't even from Philippi. She had moved there. She was a transplant. She was from Thyatira. She was from northern Asia, Asia Minor as we know it today. And uh, he, he, he he starts with this lady. And many people that are her friends and, and, and part of her family come to know the Lord. Then there's a demon-possessed girl, if you all remember that. And he casts this demon out of her, and, 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 and it seems to indicate that she followed Christ as well. So he starts off with a businesswoman from Asia Minor and a former t- demon-possessed woman. He's doing great with his, starting his, uh, his church there, right? He is doing great. The next guy is a Philippian jailer. And he and many of his household and, and, and friends, they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts his church. And I asked us, you, how many people would go, and those are the three people you'd start your church with? Most of us, we're honest, that's not who we start our church with. But that's who God chose to start his church with, with Philippi. And what happens is that he upsets the apple cart there too, alright? He's turned the world upside down, Paul is. And they're actually thrown into to prison, that's where the jailer comes in. But uh, at the end of the chapter, they're released, and basically encouraged to move on. Um, he's calls on his Roman citizenship, but they ask to move on. They go and encourage the church that met in Lydia's house and then they move on out on their missionary journey. And that's where we pick up with chapter 17, verse 1. Look there at verse 1 with me. It says, Now when they had traveled through uh, um, Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So, once again, I want to show you our map here. Okay, and see they're on their second missionary journey. They've crossed over. Now they're in Europe, and they came to Philippi. Now they're going to go through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and come to Thessalonica. Now it's about 30 miles from Philippi to Amphipolis, and then another 30 miles to Apollonia, and then about 40 to Thessalonica. Come over here. We'll catch up here, Philippi, and then down through Amphipolis. Apollonia, and then Thessalonica is right here. Berea is actually right here. This points to Thessalonica. Okay? So that's where they come. That's where they are on this second missionary journey. Um, and it, it, Interesting enough, they traveled. It, the, te- the text indicates that they traveled about 100 miles in three days. They just basically stayed, stopped off and spent the night at the other two places and were straight, had a straight course to Thessalonica. You're thinking 100 miles. Now A lot of people talk about how they do 100 miles in three days on foot. Where well, the thought is, especially after getting beat up in Philippi, most likely they couldn't have. And there, if you notice that, that, that uh, um, Lydia had um, some money. She was a seller of purple fabrics. Right? And the church met in her house. And the thought is that they provided horses for them to go on in their journey. And that's how they got there in three days, 100 miles. So if you're wondering, that doesn't seem to add up. I mean, if you're in good shape, you'd have a hard time getting 100 miles in three days. You're exactly right. So the good explanation is a good chance that they, they went horseback and they got there in three days. It was still in that, the, those times, in this terrain, 100 miles in three days in horseback was not like driving to Houston in, in your Lamborghini or your Chevy, okay? Whatever it might be, all right? It wasn't like that at all. It was hard. Um, but it, 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 it implies, if you think about it, they got there in 100, 100 miles in three days that they... Um, were on, they were on a mission, weren't they? And they were focused on their mission, and they came to the next significant city. And, and figuring that, and this is most of the time how Paul did it, he would go to, to significant cities, meaning uh, that, that had a, a pretty good base, and a lot of people would come there. Because if you influence that city, it would influence the regions around. Okay? That's why well, we came here to the Brazosport area. And this is a significant place, right? And we can influence the people around us. And you think maybe he's saying that in jest, I'm not. If you think about the Brazosport area, the, the, the people that are made up of this area, people from all over the world from because of Dow Chemical. People who will drive an hour from NASA as a co-op, a bunch of them, probably over 35 over the last how many years, 10 years or so, and they guess where they went? Back out in the United States, other churches, a lot of them did. Right from this area. So this is a pretty significant area. You're thinking, this is the Brazosport area. It's the Brazosport area. And we can have influence on the world. And, and, this, and, and when we were in Thessalonica, it had 200,000 people. And it was on the Appian, uh, the, the Ignatian Way, I'm sorry, the Ignatian Way, which is a Roman highway that was heavily trafficked. And people came through Thessalonica all the time. It's also a port city, a major port city. Do we have a port here? You bet. Do we support the port ministry here? You bet. Because the influence that that port ministry can have, not only in this little area here, but all of the world because of the port. Thessalonica, Very important city. And this is Paul came here to continue to fulfill the mission of God. And, and it was Paul's practice. He went where when he came to a city? To the synagogue where, where the Jews would be gathered. And he was going to, just the disciples were called. He was too, an apostle later, that, to go to the Jews first with the gospel. And this is what, what we read in verse 2. Look at verse 2 and we'll read down through verse 3. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had, suffered and, uh, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Now, w- notice what Paul did. For three Sabbaths, he went to the synagogue. Uh, first, in verse 2, it says, He reasoned with them, from the scriptures. And the word reason here, listen to what it's, I want you to listen to this word in the Greek. I don't do this all the time, but I want you to listen to this word in the Greek, but I think you'll recognize it. Dialegomai. Dialegomai. Dialog. Dialogue. You see that? That's where we get the word dialogue. They had a dialogue. There, there was most likely Paul, they were asking Paul questions as they were talking about the Scripture. He was asking them questions back and forth. They were having dialogue about the Scripture in the synagogue. I love that. It was a discussion. Um, then this discussion was centered around the Scriptures. Something very familiar to those who would be gathered in the synagogue because they would be reading the Scripture in the synagogue. All right. Notice what he did next uh, with the scripture in verse 3. Explaining. And the word means opening the scriptures. It's the same word used of, the open, of opening the spiritual eyes. If you remember in Luke 24, when, uh, after Jesus is risen, again, again, a couple of disciples are on the road to Emmaus. All right. they're, they're on their Emmaus walk. This was the original Emmaus walk. The most significant Emmaus walk ever. Alright? They they're walk along and then Jesus appears to them. And they don't recognize him. He's, he's keeping them from recognizing him. And they begin, he begins explaining the scripture to them. About himself. Concerning himself. Starting with Moses. It says, meaning the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. This is what was going on. He's explaining this. Look what it says after Jesus left them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Now, you notice that word, "then Then their eyes were opened. Also, later on, he was explaining it's the same word. It's interesting that our English translation translates it something different. That's okay. It just helps us see the big picture of the word. He was opening their hearts and their minds to the truth of the scripture. He was explaining it to them. It's the very same word that's used here when Paul is in the synagogue at Thessalonica. He was explaining these things to them. Explaining the scriptures. Just as Jesus explained the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Paul was doing the same thing here. Yes, there they, they, they were things being discussed, all right? But Paul did not ask this question. And please don't ever ask this question in a Bible study, in a small group, in a one-on-one encounter. What do you think the Scripture means? That's a terrible question. It doesn't matter what we think the Scripture means. The question is this, what does it mean? That's the question. What does the Scripture mean? Not what we think. What does it mean? It's got a meaning. We need to discover what the meaning is. So he wasn't going. What do you think? What do you think? Well, that's good. Just if you think that and I think that, we think differently. So what? It wasn't the kind of discussion going on here. He was bringing them to a conclusion to explain them what they actually meant. So please, if anybody asks that in your in your um, small in your life group or uh, any kind of small group you're in, just rebuke them. I'm kidding, um, but just say, hey, let's ask a better question, right? And that does what does it mean? And then explain. What the scripture means. So we see that Paul reasoned with and he explained the scriptures. Then notice a the third thing that he did in verse 3: Giving evidence. Some translations say demonstrating, proving, showing that what he had to say was true. He was proving it. He pointed to certain passages of scripture that helped explain others. And, and what did the scripture what did the scripture prove? Look at verse 3 again. Giving evidence, here's giving evidence, or proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. What scripture would he have used to prove that Christ had, had to suffer and die and rise from the dead? What scripture would you use outside the New Testament to prove that? There's a lot of them. I mean, a ton of them. And I'll just give you a few, and maybe these are some that Paul might have used. Look at Isaiah fifty-three, five through six. But he was pierced through for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray; each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Maybe that's what Paul used there, in this time, in in his time there in the synagogue. Another one, Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How about Psalm 16, 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And guess what? His Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not undergo decay because three days later he rose again. And maybe these are some of the scriptures. That Paul used to prove to to to, to uh, show that what he said was true, and, and indeed it was Jesus who was the Christ that was promised to them. He was their long-awaited Messiah. The text tells, tells us that Paul then reasoned with, he explained, and he gave evidence for. Listen, three Sabbaths, three Sabbaths. So he's at least there two weeks. Or a little bit more. Maybe he came on it the day before the Sabbath, and then showed up the next day. We don't know, but maybe three weeks that he was at least there, and he's 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 with them. and And I think this shows that he's not he's not just doing this reasoning, explaining, and giving evidence with no heart. That he loved these people. He was patient with them. He said, "I'll be back next week. Let's talk about this some more." And, and I'll be there next week, and let's talk about this some more. And I'll be back next Sabbath. Let's talk about this some more because he loved them. He wanted them to come to the saving faith in Jesus Christ like he had come so they could be freed from the penalty of their sin like it happened to him. And some people ask what in the world was it doing the other time between those Sabbaths? Well if you go read Thessalonica he talks about how he didn't charge them anything. He he worked as a tent maker in Thessalonica. It's amazing. Go read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and all of a sudden you come back and say oh that's what was going on there. And he kind of fills it fuller because he, he goes back to their first meeting. And the relationship he had with his church at Thessalonica. But he loved them. And he, and he takes the time to explain and to, to, to reason with them. And to give evidence of that Jesus truly was the Messiah. And no doubt Timothy who was with Paul may have been reminded. Must have been reminded of this time in Thessalonica. When Paul would later write to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.15, listen to what he writes to Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I think here we have a great example of Paul accurately handling the word of truth. And surely, because Timothy was with him here, when Paul wrote this, he had seen it modeled in Paul. Timothy wrote, read this and says, y'all, I remember that. When we went to Thessalonica, this is exactly what Paul did. I don't think it's the only time he did it, but it's evident here. He sees it modeled. Well, What would the result of Paul's ministry there in the synagogue for three Sabbaths in Th- Th- Thessalonica be? What would the result be? Let's discover that. Look in verse 4. We'll read down through verse 5. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming zealous, and taking, down, uh, taking along some wicked men. Now, and I love what the King James says here. Um, taking certain lewd fellows. and that Lewd is not good. That may be worse than wicked. All right? And some tra- one translation says scoundrels. It right? takes these bad men all right, from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, should it? you just think about the book of Acts so far the gospel is preached and you have division immediately I just want to tell you guys the gospel does not bring peace to the world in one sense it doesn't at all, it brings division because there's always going to be two different types of groups. There's going to be those who believe. These, these Jews and God-fearing Greeks and, and leading women. Think about this, the diversity of that. I love it. In Galatians 3.28, it says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And you see that over and over again throughout Acts. There's people from all walks of life, male and female, um, Jew and Greek. All right. over and over again that the Lord's opening the heart to the gospel so you have that response and then you have other people and just like here they they violently reject these wicked lewd men they reject the gospel and they form a mob they they get people all worked up to, to hate the apostles to hate Paul and his missionary team Evidently, this this mob must have thought that Paul and his companions were in Jason's house because they come to Jason's door. They'd seen Jason with these guys and he it looked like he was enjoying what they had to say. Maybe he was one who believed. And they come to Jason's house looking for, for Paul and his compa- com- companions to take care of them. And we, we see this, look again in verse 6. When they did not find them, All right, they came to Jason's house, when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset or have... Turn the world upside down have come here also. So they don't find them at Jason's house. So they drag Jason to the city authorities and say, it says they shout this. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So they're shouting. And they got Jason and he's in cohorts with them. So what do we do? Well, they sure had turned the world upside down. And in doing so, they had turned it right side up through the preaching of the gospel. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Well, however, if we are preaching the true gospel, then the world always thinks that we're turning the world upside down. We're turning over their apple cart. Things are going smooth. Why do you got to bring that into this? You know, I don't, don't bring, bring religion into this. You ever hear that? Well, we're not, I'm not, I don't discuss politics and religion. It's a lie. They talk about it all the time. This is when all of a sudden it hits home, they don't want to talk about it. And when the gospel comes forth, part of the gospel is people have to see their sin. How many people just love to see their sin? Even if a believer. Nobody loves to see their sin. And if you're not a believer and don't have hope in Jesus Christ, you hate to see your sin. And if we're preaching the true gospel that first starts with the fact that we're sinful and separated from a holy God who created the world... Then it's going to turn some people off. Some people are going to be upset. No, I don't talk about that. We're just not a place that we talk about that. That's personal. Yeah, but it's not. It, it, no, the truth is, it's not personal. It, it, it is private, but it's not personal in a sense. All right. I mean, I mean, it is personal, but it's not private. We we got to share it and we got to talk to people about it. And, and they were messing things up. They were messing with the status quo here, the status quo here in Thessalonica. And that's what happens when you bring the gospel to bear on the lives of people. Well, look what happens in verse 7. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. So the Jews who were part of this mob were angry. They were so angry, listen to this, that they committed treason. Think about this with me. The Jews, a part of this mob, who are angry about the gospel being preached, and they go to Jason's house, rip him out of the house, present him for the authorities, and, and they, 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 they say, what do they say about him? They say that they're contrary to the decrees of Caesar. If a Jew says that, they're committing treason. Why would I say that? Because they're setting Caesar up as an authority over Yahweh. They're one true God. Why do I say this? This wasn't a civil matter. This was a spiritual matter. They hadn't broken any law. And yet, they're they're so mad that they're going to go and say, Caesar's our king. That's what they're saying. We're going to call upon Caesar and his laws to take care of these guys. And in so doing, when a Jew does that, they're rejecting the God that called them as a nation. They're rejecting Yahweh. They're... Committing tre- treason—it's it, it, it's ironic that they do this because they're basically saying no, they're committing treason. No, they are because they're saying Caesar's our god and not the one true god. It seems then that they forced Jason to, to post bail. We're not sure exactly this they, they, what goes on here and don't, the understanding of. Um, this pledge from Jason and others Um, maybe maybe they forced him to post bail and maybe promise to ask Paul and his companions to leave town we don't know the whole agreement here but that's what it says verse 10 then it says the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived they went into the synagogue of the Jews so Paul and Silas are sent away to Berea and it's understood as we'll see later that Timothy was with them as well Um, but let me show you the map again okay so now alright they're going from Thessalonica to Berea alright this little trip here and they send them away by night for I guess protection here and they come from Thessalonica to Berea right there so now they find themselves in Berea on this missionary journey and when they get to Berea they again go where to the synagogue because that's where the Jewish people would be meeting. And, and no doubt they reason with and explained and gave evidence from the scriptures that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That's what they did. Notice in verse 11 what it said of the people that met with they met with in Berea. I love this verse. I've quoted it many times. Now these men were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Wow. Noble minded. And why were they noble minded it says right there because they, ex- they, ex- they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures day to see whether these things were so I love this with great eagerness there was a hunger for the word of God and they expected it to do something in them and for them is there an eagerness in your life for the word of God is there an expectation I can't get enough? I'm hungry for the Word of God. Well, if you know Him, there should be. That should be a part of our life. There should be an eagerness to take in His Word. And, and, and there, you've heard this saying too, there's proof in the pudding. There, there's, there's proof in the pudding. What do I mean by that? Well, how is there proof in the pudding that they eagerly, they eagerly sought after the Word of God with great eagerness? Because it says they examined the Scriptures daily to see whether the things were so. They were so hungry, they got in the Scriptures daily. <gasps> That's amazing. Daily, they got into the Scriptures. To see if these things were so that Paul had said. They didn't just take Paul's word for it. They were from Missouri. Some of you get that. Alright, everybody over, you know, 40 maybe. Missouri is known as the show-me state. And Paul's making these great claims from the Scripture. And they're saying, show me. Prove it to me. Explain that to me. Prove it to me. Show me where it says that. And Paul, yeah, I'll show you where it says that. And we need to be like people from Missouri. We need to be show me people. When people say something, when they say that God says or the scriptures teach, we ought to say show me. Amen. And I'm thankful that this body does that. Have I been mean, many people. Hey, you mentioned this other day. Can you show me where that was? You bet had a great conversation with a guy yesterday and we've been talking this week about some different things about the resurrection from our body and, and um, he teaches our, our children he's not here. I'll go ahead and embarrass him since he's not here I wouldn't say this if he, if he was in here but Gary Sanders Gary spends hours I'm talking maybe 20 hours preparing to teach your children and I'm not kidding with you Dana's shaking her head because Tyler teaches with him I mean, he takes this seriously It's not like, and I'm not saying anybody does this, like the night before I'm going to open up my Sunday school material and go over and be ready for the kids. Gary pours over the scriptures. He examines the scriptures. He was trying to put the gospel accounts together with all the resurrection accounts. And he had some questions. And he, throughout the week, he was talking to me. He called me yesterday. And I was on the road. He said, I want to talk to you when you're on the road. When you get home, call me. I called him back. I mean, it was amazing. Because he was examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so, to see if this was true. That's the heart we ought to all have, right? Take it seriously. Oh, my goodness, somebody said this. So just, don't just take it because I said it. Or somebody else said it. Your favorite... TV or your favorite radio preacher said it or somebody wrote it in a book, go to the scriptures and examine them daily to see if those things are so. I've used this example many times. The Bible needs to be your paper shredder. If you're reading a book that claims to be from God, and there's some really good books out there, you need to take that Bible, I mean, take that book and take it through the Bible. Zzz, like that. And whatever doesn't get all ripped up, all right, that's proven itself by the Word of God. All of the rest of the stuff, throw it away. If you're hearing something, take it through 66 books and see if it's so. 66 books, how in the world am I going to do that? Well, if you examine the Scriptures daily, you'll eventually get there, right? You'll have some some discernment and some understanding. You'll be noble-minded like they were. And you'll know the Word and you'll be able to see that's true, that's true, that's false, that's false, that's true, that's true, that's false, that's false. That didn't sound right. Let me check that again. Well, that's that's right on with the scripture. Be noble minded. Mm. Well, what was the result of them examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so? Look at verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. God used his word again to open the hearts of many people in Berea. That's what he does. When we look at his word, he uses his word to change our life. Anytime God is doing a good work, what can we expect? Opposition. Opposition. The enemy's not going to sit back and say, Oh, that's great. Let's let him go. I'm not going to do anything about this. Not at all. Look what happens. Let's read 13 down through the rest of the chapter. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Well, the mob from Thessalonica is still so ticked off, and they heard something good was going on in Berea a little far away, so they show up, just stir up, and I love this, agitate. You guys got to add ag- most of us, our new washer doesn't have an agitator. It's weird. It's got like a big drum, but it kind of does this now. It's not as cool as one of those things in the middle. It just takes your clothes and does this. That's agitating. We need to go back to the old washers just because of this passage, right? I'm kidding. <laughs> All right? That's, I mean, the agitator. I mean, it's agitating, right? And they're, they're They're agitating. They're stirring up the crowd because they're still so mad that Paul has come and showed them that they were sinful and needed a Savior. No, no, not us. We're good. And we keep the Ten Commandments better than those guys back there in Apollonia, at least, right? That was their thought. We didn't want any part of this. So they come in and they just, they, they, these, they're upset because they're turning the word upside down. They run Paul out of town, but not before the Lord does a work in the lives of many people who were eager for the word of God and examined the scriptures daily and they believed. And I love this. It's, it's Notice Silas and T- Timothy get to stay on a little bit longer before they go meet Paul in Athens to encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ there. The mission of God, the mission of the church, cannot be stopped. God will continue to use his gospel through his people to turn the world upside down, which will actually end up turning it right side up again. Well, so what? What about this passage, these 15 verses? As I said, there was no way I was going to be able to do all 34 Um, there's just some great stuff here and and we can learn a lot from this passage. So in order to turn the world upside down or right side up, depending on how you want to say it, we need to follow Paul's example in a couple ways. Number one, rightly divide the word of God. Rightly divide the word of God. And we look how Paul did this. He reasoned with them. He had a discussion. Um, with these people. And, and he asked them questions. They asked him questions. And there was an ongoing dialogue that went on. Alright. And I'm not against somebody knocking on a door and somebody giving somebody a track. God can use that. Now I'm not against and I say, tell you this all the time in them restaurants. I'm trying to engage sometimes with the waitresses and waiters uh, with some conversation. And sometimes I've had a chance to share the whole gospel with people. And, that, and that's great. But I think in general, our lives should be explained with we're building relationships with. We get an ongoing dialogue with somebody about the gospel. We give them time to chew on it. And we, we chew on their answers. When we come back and we talk about it more. And we keep calling them, obviously, to trust in Jesus Christ. But we're patient with them. We, we just keep going. So he reasoned with them. He explained. Don't ask people what they think it means. Help them come to the conclusion of what it really does mean. And people, well, you know, it means this for somebody and you really can't know. You can and that's the worst excuse in the world to say, well, this person believes this about it. There's, gotta be, there's only one meaning. Somebody's got to be right. And when we just examine the Scriptures and we put it in context, it's evident what it means. There's not a mystery here. Why would God give us His Word and go, I hope you figure it out. It's not that. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit has to enlighten in, in, in our minds to see that. But as you look in context, it's not like, well, this person believes this, and it must mean that for that person. It's not like that at all. There's one truth, and God can help us explain that. So when you explain what is the truth, and then thirdly, he gives evidence. Here he goes, and we're having this discussion, especially those who grew up in the church around the Bible. You just go, hey, well, the Bible says this. It's amazing. What happens? A friend of mine, uh, he's a pastor friend of mine, always says, this was, you'll be in a conversation, somebody's getting a little agitated, you know, some of these people like this, stirring things up again, and he'll just say, well, the Bible says. And it just like, takes off the edge, a lot of times in conversation. Especially when you're t- talking to people who think they know the Lord, or at least have an understanding of the Bible, in general, what the Bible says. And it's just like, it doesn't really matter what he says, right, then. The Bible says. So he, he, he gave evidence. And then, there's other evidence, and we're going to actually see that next week at Mars Hill. He'll give other types of evidence beyond the Scripture, along with the Scripture. And then he does it, remember he was three days, or three Sabbaths, lovingly and patiently. Be patient with people. We didn't all arrive to what we understand like that. And I would just say that even be patient with people who already know the Lord, you all, just be patient with each other. We all got areas of growth, Right? We all have areas that we need to grow up in and to understand better. And because you have this understanding of something and you can understand the Bible and, and somebody's not there yet, don't look like, I mean, what's wrong with you? When I just say to you, you didn't get there overnight either. You, didn't, you came to it. God brought you to that point. Be patient with each other. I love what Paul writes to Timothy. Too. He says, he's, later on in 2 Timothy, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Love people enough to give them some room to, to help them grow. doesn't mean don't tell them the truth. It doesn't have, it help them come to the conclusion of what the word of God says. But be patient with them. Here's a question if we're going to turn the world upside down and one of the ways we can do that just as Paul did is to rightly divide the word of God let me ask this are you rightly dividing the word of God? are you rightly dividing the word of God? are you you reasoning with people explaining to people giving evidence and doing it lovingly and patiently? our prayer is that we will for the glory of God secondly to turn the world upside down we need to receive the word with eagerness examining it daily just like he did in Thessalonica. Remember Luke, he, he, he commended the Bereans. Luke is the author, obviously, of Acts, uh, the human author. For, for, and, he, and he commends them by calling them noble-minded. Oh, that we would be called no, noble-minded. What, what a compliment. And those who are noble-minded are those who are receiving the word with eagerness. Hey, can, can I ask you a question? You don't have to answer me. Did you come on Sunday mornings expecting the Lord to speak? You don't have to answer that question. Do you come on Sunday mornings expecting the Lord to speak to you? If not, you should. We read His Word every week together. You know, we heard the Word of God spoken through the the mouth of Chuck this morning as he read in John. That was God's Word. And I love that He said, The Word of God. It's what it is. We heard I I didn't even have to get up here. You're probably thinking I wish you wouldn't have, right? But just chuck right there. We heard God's word. Do we come expecting to hear God's word? Or just something read from a book. Come with eagerness, expecting God to speak. And then then the other question is are we examining it daily? And when we examine it daily, are we expecting God to speak to us daily? We don't have to be here in this building or in the new building that we're going to have. We can do it daily. Are you examining the Scriptures daily so God can grow you and make you discerning so you can take all that I say and say, okay, is that true or not? And everything else you hear. Are we receiving the Word with eagerness and examining it daily by God's grace? Let's be about that. Because if we do, if if, if we do rightly divide the Word of God and if we do receive the Word with eagerness and examine it daily, guess what will happen? We'll turn this world upside down. And in so doing, we'll turn it right side up again. Through the power of the gospel. Well, let me ask one more question before our time's done. Have you been turned upside down? Or in reality, have you been turned right side up? By the gospel. Have you come to understand that God is holy? He created this world. He rules over all. And God says that we too must be holy. We must glorify him with our lives. Get, make, it, make it all about him. And the Bible says we don't do that. We sin and we fall short of his glory. We don't hold him up. We hold us up. And the Bible calls that sin. And he says that that sin separates us from God. And we deserve God's right judgment because of that sin. Because of that making us out to be God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent Jesus to pay our penalty, to pay for our sin, so that we might be made right with God. Therefore, having been justified or made right with God through faith, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have peace with God through Jesus Christ by trusting what he did for you through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he'll make your life, which is now upside down, he'll flip it right side up. And you can be all that God wants you to be. You can then glorify God and know that you're forgiven and free. And my prayers, you haven't done that, that you do that today. Don't wait. Do it today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be people that the world looks at because of the message and the life that we live. That it looks like we're turning the world upside down. But Lord, remind us it's all about perspective, that when we're doing that, we're really turning the world right side up so that people can have a relationship with you. Their creator would help us this week to rightly divide your word and to receive your word with eagerness and examine it daily so that you might use us to fulfill your mission in this world. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we continue to?